You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. To Bible Prophecy Talk and Nowhere to Run. My name is Chris White. Thank you for downloading the show. So today I'm going to do something a little bit different, something that I said in the past I probably wouldn't do, which was review and comment upon the news of the day, and specifically how it could or could not relate to Bible prophecy. I know there are a lot of shows out there that uh, read the news and talk about Bible prophecy and how it could relate, and I've tried to shy away from that in the past because I think that uh, there's a tendency to see everything as uh, fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And I've got an interesting take on some of this, I think. So I think, at least for this show, and it may end up being more of a uh, a regular thing that I'll review and, and comment upon certain news stories of interest. Particularly, this show is going to talk about Uh, ISIS and a lot of things revolving around the Islamic State or IS and then also some of the interesting things going on with Russia and Iran and so on so we'll get into that a little bit later. But first I wanted to mention some issues about uh, young earth and old earth creationism and perhaps get your opinion about a particular subject that is uh, uh, kind of preventing me from doing something big on the subject. Uh, As I've mentioned before, I have uh, currently a view that sort of reconciles old earth and young earth creationism um, in the sense that I think that time dilation plays a role of some sort. Um, If after the Big Bang, since time and energy and mass were all going much faster and are slowing down, that would necessarily affect time, meaning that you can have seven or six 24-hour days as a part of creation, literal days, that can encompass quite a bit of what we could call time, since time is absolutely relative. It can be 24-hour days, but have a decreasing amount of time in each day. And uh, a person that has detailed this quite well is Gerald Schroeder, a former professor of uh, nuclear physics at MIT, and he has put out a few things, Genesis and the Big Bang. Now, I don't see everything that Gerald Schroeder does. as uh, I, I disagree with him on certain points and whatnot. And as I've also mentioned, I think that uh, Dr. Walt Brown's information about uh, the hydroplate theory, which explains, in my view, the flood, at least how the flood happened, and the so-called fountains of the deep opening up sort of a uh, an explanation of, of the physics of the flood, I think that needs to be incorporated in this view as well. So I said in the past that though I really wanted to do something about this, whether it's a documentary film or whatever, um, there were some issues that I just wasn't sure about and uh, they were kind of preventing me from from going further with it. I have since done a little bit more research and I'm I'm interested enough to go ahead with the research process and just see what comes of it, even if it's just for my own... Uh, 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 benefit if I never end up doing anything with it or not. But there is a question that I would like to put to you guys and see what you think of it because it's the one area that's kind of got me a little tripped up. And I've looked at a lot of the criticisms of this idea and, and others like it. And this is the one that kind of has me saying, okay, if I can't figure this out, then there's a problem. So I need to at least come up with something that uh, explains the evidence. So that is in day four, the sun is created, yet the previous day is when plants are created. Now this is uh, really a problem for both views, but uh, the people that take a more old earth view, which the time dilation, though it's certainly not an old earth creationism view, it is uh, more akin to the old earth than it is the, the young earth creationism. So this idea of plants being created before the sun in day four 
is an issue. The young Earth creationists would say, well, we don't have uh, very long to wait for the sun. We've only got one day. Plants can survive for one day without the sun, but the old Earth creationists have a bit more trouble there because they have whatever amount of time they think it is uh, between day three and day four that the plants have to survive without sun. So I've heard a lot of different ideas about this. The um, and, and we need to recognize in, in any way you look at it, it's it's pretty much a miracle either way you look at it. But I do think that there's some logical progression here too that makes sense of the evidence. So the old earth creationists will say something to the effect of the sun was actually created on day two, but in the whole idea of letting there be light and whatnot, is uh, they point to a verse in Job, which is another creation account that talks about how the earth was essentially surrounded by cloud cover. And so what they'll say is that the earth was surrounded by this uh, atmospheric block, and so the letting there be light um, was sort of allowing light to come through to a certain degree from that cloud cover. And so the letting there be light is in, in the uh, creation of the sun in day four is simply a further dissipation of this atmospheric layer to allowing the sun to be visible. And that is, you know, got some logical stuff there going on. But the problem I have with it is that in day four, it specifically says that God made the sun. It doesn't say, and that is the sort of sticking point that I have there. If we're going to remain true and, and consistent with this, we need to uh, either find some reason that that word made doesn't have to be made or just take it at its face value that he indeed made the sun uh, on that day. Now, there are other theories, particularly about non-solar light being there and explaining why God said that there was light before. Um, and if we take anything like a Big Bang cosmology into account when considering the creation week, it seems logical that there would be <coughs> light of various types, <coughs> you know, on the light spectrum, whether that be ultraviolet light or whatever, light from the, um, you know, the Big Bang, which also would probably be closer to the Earth. I'm not sure exactly how it would all work because uh, I've really just seen sort of proposals about it being possible that non-solar light uh, could be in view during the early part of the creation week. So if there's any ideas about that or anything that uh, makes that make sense, I'd be interested to hear about it. Um, in general, I don't have a problem with the sun being created on day four. That's not really my my issue because I think everything else can make sense quite well. In fact, the idea that the sun was created on day four and yet God still create, uh, calls the other previous days days, evening and morning, and then there was one day, that whole issue is very helpful for my theory about uh, the time dilation playing a role. I won't go into the details, but that's like a, a very good argument for it. Um, because it essentially suggests that the 24-hour period, which is central to this idea, is sort of a uh, non-negotiable idea. Clearly, since if the sun wasn't created in day four, 24 hours, which is uh, you know the the Earth's rotation uh, relative to the sun and all that, it doesn't really have a good uh, point of reference to call something a day without the sun. Yet. Uh, anyway, I won't go into the details, but it just suggests that 24 hours is 24 hours, whether there's a sun or not. And that idea is very central to the concept of the time dilation idea. But in any case, I don't have a problem with the sun being created on day four. That's not my issue. The, the issue is that, that plants were created the day before. So, again, if you're a young earth creationist, you still have a problem. You would just say, well, the plants were created a day before. They didn't have to go very long without sunlight. But if you're uh, anything akin to an old earth creationist, that presents a much greater problem. Um, so, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. I know some people might propose something about the water canopy idea, but uh, I don't uh, agree with that anymore. And one of the reasons I don't is because of the superb explanation 
of the floodwaters and so on from Dr. Walt Brown and his hydroplate theory. And I've always kind of had a problem with the uh, the waters being separated from the waters being an earth, you know, covered in in sort of a water canopy because that just uh, doesn't compute in a lot of ways. But it makes a whole lot more sense with the hydroplate theory and actually is something that we can uh, test to a degree. So anyhow, that's kind of where I'm at. If uh, If I can figure this out or at least have something close to a logical explanation for this problem, I will almost certainly go forth with this project. Uh, but if not, I've got enough projects to keep me busy. But it is something I think that either way I'll be looking into because I'm interested in it. So, All right, let's move on to the news. Okay, so I want to talk about uh, ISIS or the Islamic State, IS, and some issues with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and also with Russia and Iran and some of the deals they've been making and apply this to Bible prophecy or at least to the way that I think we're supposed to look at this in terms of Bible prophecy. I'll explain what I mean by that. I've been trying to figure out the best way to um, to do this and I think the best way is to just start off by talking about the current events in just a factual way without any real opinions about it. So let's start off with the Islamic State, IS, formerly known as ISIS, which is a little bit more of a, a catchy name, I think, and so sometimes I'll just revert to calling them ISIS, even though they don't really call themselves that anymore. So this is a group that is Wahhabist. Wahhabism is a very minority uh, view in Islam. It's considered by a lot of people to be sort of a, a, a sect, um, heretical even, but, um, you know, that that's debatable. The The Wahhabists are kind of like Puritans of Islam. They think it should um, go back to the way it was. They are very against the idea of, like, uh, Islamic scholars interpreting the law, particularly in sort of liberal ways. And they are um, very extreme in terms of their uh, uh, belief that uh, Sharia law should be imposed violently. They are obviously extremely uh, uh, violent. We've seen so many of the pictures of their victims in the countries and cities and so on that they're taking over. Uh, Christians, of course, among those. We see these devastating images of uh, Christians being killed and persecuted, which is having a great impact on our uh, views of this as well. Um, continually being factual here as opposed to opinionated. They basically came to power along with, uh, kind of united with a lot of other Islamic extremist groups, including Al-Qaeda, in the fight, uh, the, the civil war in Syria that's been going on for a couple years. And during that fight, they became uh, really good at fighting. I heard one analyst say that when you're fighting Hezbollah, Hezbollah you either die or you get better. And in this case, they got better and got more organized. They are a particularly well-organized group that um, that has a pretty defined command structure and are pretty pretty good at what they're doing, even though what they're doing is not very good. So after Syria, or I guess uh, in conjunction with that, they began to expand into Syria's uh, eastern neighbor, Iraq. Now, Iraq is a country that has a sizable uh, Shia population. It's important, I guess, to go back and say that though they are Wahhabists, Wahhabists are sort of a minority of, Sh of Sunni Islam. Sunni Islam is the majority of, of of Muslims, they're they're Sunnis. I don't know what it is. Something like seventy percent, I think, of the, uh, of the Islamic world is Sunni. So technically, this ISIS group is a part of the uh, majority uh, of the Muslim world, even though their particular brand of Sunnism is quite the minority. Um, but one could could foresee how Sunnis could be more easily converted to the idea of an extremist version of Sunnism, certainly more than you could uh, in, see the, the Shiites 
converting to either Wahhabism or Sunnism. That's just uh, difficult to imagine. The core um, areas of, of Sunni, the sort of smaller version of Islam, uh, is in Iraq and Iran primarily, Azerbaijan, uh, and they do. There is a sizable Shiite minority in Syria as well. So in one and in, in Lebanon, parts of Lebanon. So most of the places that um, this ISIS group is gone into, they're now moving into Iraq and, and other places. We'll discuss, but they've been in Iraq for some time now, conquering uh, lots of cities and gaining a lot of momentum military uh, equipment that left behind by the Iraqi army who fled many places and and money from the Iraqi central bank although that's sometimes disputed but nevertheless they're gaining in power and strength as they go through Iraq but my point is to say that they are primarily targeting so far these areas of the Shiite world um, so the, as they have been uh, doing that, they are they're definitely recruiting a lot of uh, children. They have a lot of money. They're extru- they're the most well financed uh, um, terrorist organization, and and though they are getting a lot of uh, attention in the media, it should be noted that they're really not that strong in terms of just raw manpower or equipment. I mean, they, as of last time I saw them, I think they had like a few helicopters, but it was not even sure that they could operate them, you know, in terms of an army with that, the kind of um, military prowess that even some of its neighbors like Iran would have is just not, uh, uh, or, or, or Turkey to the north or whatever, Egypt or Saudi Arabia. It's just not it's just not a match for any of those things yet. The concern is that through their very um, uh, focused efforts in terms of recruitment and basically brainwashing children, which is a really, really important part of their um, their uh, technique, they are, you know, outreaches to children, and 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 if they're y- young enough they go to sort of a, a brainwashing school and if they're over 16 they go to military camps and stuff like that and the children seem to be the main people embracing the um, the uh, Islamic State idea so let's look a little deeper into what's going on here so in addition to all those facts this ISIS group is run by one guy basically Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi he is being touted in the media as the next Osama bin Laden and all this uh, other stuff that's going on. He's an interesting figure. He is claiming to be the uh, the caliph, meaning he is kind of like a, um, a more political military uh, leader of a caliphate. Caliphate can be... Uh, originally, they said it was a caliphate of Syria, then they expanded that to Iraq and so on. Um, that's where the terms like ISIS and stuff came from. So they're calling it their caliphate right now is, is sort of a localized, although a pretty big caliphate, but uh, a caliph would rule over that particular area. Now, of course, their goals, they've put out all kinds of stuff about their goals and stuff, which is to rule the entire Muslim world and have it be the Islamic caliphate uh, in general of all Muslims. That would be their ultimate goal. Um, this particular guy, uh, Al-Baghdadi, is uh, a guy who was in a uh, in, in custody of the U.S., probably in one of their camps over there. I'm not sure, sure where, but he was released, I think, in 2009. And anyway, he claims to be a descendant from Muhammad, or at least from the tribe of Muhammad. A little bit of un- unclear his exact claim to lineage from Muhammad, but that's an important uh, distinction to make. It gives him a uh, some gravitas for, for sure. <clears throat> and um, so recently they have made really kind of sparse, like run-in, run-out things in Lebanon, which also has a very sizable Shiite um, minority, 45 to 55% of Lebanon is Shiite. So again, this is uh, something they tried to, to do recently. And of course, that's right on the border of Jordan. And even though Jordan really doesn't have a, is is definitely a Sunni majority, there is some uh, concern among Jordanians as well. 
So recently, this week, um, the uh, Americans have been flying in support and food aid and, su- and such to uh, to refugees from that are fleeing from ISIS. And they have recently, in addition to that, also uh, uh, had a few military strikes against uh, ISIS. So America seems to be retaliating to an extent. I read somewhere that Britain also is considering uh, helping with these strikes against ISIS as it uh, uh, continues to take cities and and Iraq and the surrounding areas. So let's analyze this just a little bit in terms of the the possible threat that this could have first. Um, The army is something like, I mean, I don't know what it is now, 10,000 people or something like that, which is sizable. I mean, you could say it's about the size of, you know, some of the smaller countries' armies, and depending, and they are well-funded. And because they fight, fight in primarily guerrilla tactics, they are not as easily uh, taken out with things like airstrikes. And because they have a lot of money, it is conceivable that they will continue to operate especially considering their focus on training the next generation into their ideas. So the people, the adults in these areas, uh, are not quick to embrace ISIS for lots of reasons. Um, and, I don't, and I don't expect them to. Whether they're Sunnis or whether they're Shiites in these areas, the, it's, not, it's not happening as much as, as you would be led to believe in terms of people just embracing them and saying that uh, they want to join their their fight and the rest of it. Uh, but if it was an ideology that, uh, for whatever reason, continued to uh, grow, the next generation with their tactics could uh, become even uh, more interesting. So it could be uh, something that, in the future, could be a bigger deal than it is now. On the other hand, if there were a lot of victories against uh, the West and different things that would encourage, if, they're, if they gain more territory, especially if they were able to, uh, to uh, well, they don't want to uh, help the uh, uh, Hamas and Israel. In fact, they don't like Hamas and they think that they're doing a really bad job and they want to take out Hamas and uh, and basically... You know, fight Israel on their own terms in their own way. So they don't really want to support that. But if they ever had victories against uh, against uh, particularly Israel or whatever, you might see some more support just in terms of people saying, all right, well, maybe there's something to this if they continue to gain territory. But that is a big if. I mean, because they are, you know, as well-funded as they might be, as well, um, you know, as, as, as having some some skills in guerrilla warfare and whatnot, they really aren't any match for some of these countries, and they don't have that many people, and it is doubtful that they're going to have the kind of success they have had in Syria and Iraq if they try to expand any further. Because, you know, Syria was a war-torn place because of the um, the Civil War, and even before that, I mean, it was one of the reasons the Civil War happened, so it wasn't exactly... Um, uh, the toughest kind of place, and then Iraq, as we've all been hearing so much about. I mean, they, the soldiers basically gave up and ran away, and there was very little resistance in most parts of Iraq as well. It was sort of a, uh, a government that was just not that strong when push came to shove. So, to their right is Iran, who they no doubt would love to attack because. Um, they are the biggest Shiite uh, country that there is, but it's also unlikely that they would even try such a thing considering they would just be so outmatched. So the question remains of will they uh, progress or not. So let's move into some of the implications or possible implications in terms of Bible prophecy. So with this guy claiming to be the descendant of Muhammad and claiming to um, be the head of the new Islamic caliphate, it definitely makes us think, oh my goodness, is this, uh, you know, the Assyrian uh, Antichrist idea coming to pass and all the rest of it? And to that, I would say a number of things. First of all, I think that 
it's important to th- to know that this idea in Islam is, regardless of their Shiites or Sunnis, they do have a little bit of, uh, uh, there is a strong idea about the end times events. And because of, especially because of their uh, dire straits and a lot of the war-torn stuff that they've seen, the end times beliefs of uh, of people in Muslim countries are at an all-time high. And even though, you know, you, a lot of the Islamic Antichrist people, you know, Walid Shabbats and Joel Richardson and whatnot, are tending to downplay this just a little bit because it's not really shaping up in that way that they have envisioned it. Particularly the whole Joel Rosenberg 12th Imam idea is is a Shiite thing, not a Sunni thing. It's the Shiites who believe in, or some of them believe in the 12th Imam and uh, and the rest of it. So it's the enemies of of ISIS that that uh, Joel Richardson and and Joel Rosenberg and Walid Shobat have always anticipated the the Mahdi coming from. So it doesn't quite match up there. I saw something from Walid Shobat saying. He really didn't think much of it because he envisioned uh, the Antichrist would have to be something like a Sufi because a Sufi would be better able to unite uh, Sunnis and and uh, and Shiites, where a Wahhabist Sunni would be very very unlikely to do that. But again, it's possible, especially if there are a lot of victories against the West and Israel, people might come on board. But the least likely to come on board are those. Uh, Shiites in, in Iran particularly. Another thing to note about it is that because there is a lot of end times uh, anticipation in the Islamic world, the uh, ISIS group has been kind of playing that up a little bit. Particularly their things like their flag, which is a black flag, is a very important concept in uh, in Islamic eschatology, there are hadiths. These are supposed sayings of Muhammad, not in the Quran, but where most of Islamic eschatology comes from. That the black flags will come from, I believe it's Saudi Arabia, or Arabia, particularly Mecca or Medina. Uh, so, because of that, uh, the black flag is sort of the symbol of the Mahdi and what he is uh, uh, and his army that will march from Saudi Arabia. So there has even been some thoughts that they're making a route or would try to at some point go to Saudi Arabia in order to essentially make that prophecy look like it's coming to pass. Because if they could do that, if see, even though um, Sunnis and Shiites don't really agree on the nature of the Mahdi or whatever, they do agree about a Mahdi. And even though they don't agree on like the caliphate idea, I mean, there's some support about that. There's a lot of confusion about who should be the caliph and that was really one of their major splits between Sunnis and Shiites in the first place so it, it it doesn't look on the surface like anything that could turn out to be anything much bigger though at this especially in light of uh, western aggression uh, and uh, and response to this uh, growing threat but nevertheless my point is that they both Sunnis and Shiites believe in Ahmadi though um to less differing degrees, and certainly not necessarily in the case of the Sunnis, do they believe the Mahdi is necessarily a part of the end times thing. But because of things like the probably intentional black flag, uh, flag of the uh, Islamic State group, and things like this guy <clears throat> claiming to be a descendant of Muhammad, are all things that are uh, important ideas in Islamic eschatology. Uh, the Mahdi. Um, is supposed to be a descendant of Muhammad, and though uh, al-Baghdadi has not said, he has not made any claims about the Mahdi, is only claiming about the caliphate, there are some that uh, think that that is an unspoken thing that he is going to say at some point in these kinds of ideas. So, that is, that's kind of the facts about all this stuff and where we stand with it. And it still remains to be seen what will come of this. Will it just dwindle? Is this something that is uh, really important right now and at August 9th, 2014 and won't be in a year from now? Uh, or will this uh, expand and become part of the end time scenario or at least an appearance 
of an end-time scenario for malicious reasons. So in terms of an analysis of about whether or not this has anything to do with the end times, I, I feel like most of the things that people are saying about it right now are really just kind of cherry-picked, very general ideas that don't necessarily have anything to do with the Bible. So, for example, you'll hear a lot of talk about this because Iraq and uh, Iran and Syria were all a part of um, Assyria, you know, essentially. So the idea here is that we've got a guy that's seemingly coming from Assyria that's claiming to be Muhammad, then this is a very good potential for the Antichrist. Well, that might be true, in my view, it can't, I mean, it can't be an Assyrian Antichrist, at least based on um, the verses that people use to propose that the Antichrist will be Assyrian. In other words, I think it's possible that the Antichrist could come from this area. But the verses that are have made everybody think, oh, the Antichrist is Assyrian, are not saying that the Antichrist will be an Assyrian at all. Uh, you can see the uh, the podcast, free podcast out there on in my book, False Christ, Will the Antichrist Be an Assyrian? Um, that shows that, no, I mean, they're, they're just, that was some of the most uh, blatant misuse of the Bible by some of the people that have promoted this idea because they, and I don't, I don't know about motives or whatever, but it's not, it's not biblically accurate. Uh, but then again, because I am unsure about where I, the Bible says the Antichrist will come from, I have to leave op open the possibility that he will be Assyrian. As far as this guy claiming to be the descendant of Muhammad, this is, of course, nothing to do with the Bible. Um, uh, the Bible doesn't say that the Antichrist will claim to be the descendant of Muhammad or anything like it. Um, and, in fact, this is really just coming from the belief that the Islamic eschatology, particularly the things that they say about the Mahdi, who they say will be a descendant of Muhammad, since they say the, the Mahdi is going to be a descendant of Muhammad, and this guy is a descendant of the Muhammad, then this must have something to do with Bible prophecy. In other words, they're taking for absolute granted that, number one, the Islamic eschatology is true, and number two, that our end times will come to pass exactly as the uh, Islamic Hadiths have said, despite that not being a biblical concept. Um, you know, just it's not in itself biblical. It's just it's just saying, well, we know. Uh, let's all turn to our Hadiths, and we know that the uh, Mahdi is supposed to be a descendant of Muhammad, so this has potential for that. So again, it's not a, a biblical idea. Um, so those are the the two sort of general things that people are getting scared about. Now, the 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 most uh, important probably has been the persecutions of Christians. And this has been especially noteworthy because we've been all bombarded with images of dead children and crucified people and stuff like that recently, which is absolutely uh, horrible. And not just there, I mean, in everywhere. I mean, in, in India right now, uh, Hindus are are also persecuting Christians to a high degree. I mean, it's just as brutal there. Um, but we're not getting a lot of images from that. You know, I mean, the point is, is that when the persecution against Christians happens, it's primary, when Jesus says persecution will be like no other time, I mean, it's going to be a time of trouble like nobody's ever seen and nobody will ever see, is in reference essentially to the persecution that occurs after the abomination of desolation. Now, I'm not saying that there won't be persecution leading up to that as potentially part of the birth pangs or whatever, but we can't just point to persecution and say, uh, that's it, the end times are coming, any more than we can point to earthquakes or uh, or hurricanes or whatever else and say, look, the end times are here, there's more earthquakes than normal. And uh, I think that that, first of all, presupposes that the birth pangs are something that will happen over a long, long period of time. And I would suggest that they don't. I suggest they ha happen very, very quickly. In fact, I think that's the point of Jesus' teaching later on in the Olivet Discourse when he says, when you see these things happen, you're going to know summer is near. And when you when the fig tree puts forth its leaves, you know, that's the same way that you're going to see these signs that I just got mentioning happening. I think he's essentially rebuking the idea of uh, this is all going to happen over a long, long, long period of time. Um, and so anytime you see an earthquake, you know, jot it down and, and make... 
I think that what Jesus is talking about in terms of the birth pangs are things that are going to happen relatively quickly. The first of those birth pangs that he mentions is false Christs and, and things like that. And because of that, I think that we should consider a possibility that none of these birth pangs will happen until the first thing happens, uh, which which is many will come in my name saying I'm the Christ and will mislead many. And then you're going to hear rumors of wars and so on and so forth. But don't be alarmed for the end is not yet. So I, I, I anticipate these birth pangs being uh, directly related to the early appearance of the Antichrist. Now, of course, you're saying, well, that's what's happening right now. This is the early appearance of the Antichrist. And so back to the persecution thing. Um, I don't think that that is uh, um, something terribly unique. And it doesn't require the Antichrist to have Christian persecution, as anybody that's a student of history will tell you. And I, I think sometimes about the history of, of, of persecution of Christians and so on and so forth, and how many times we have erred in terms of calling something the end times simply because Christians were being persecuted. I mean, it's happened in every era of the church uh, especially when persecutions were more severe than others, it's always been, okay, now we've got to make these events be the end times. Because, look, Christians are being persecuted. This is definitely the end times. So so if that's our criteria, we're going to be in danger. And I don't use the word danger lightly, um, because I have been really, and one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is I'm starting to think, especially as I saw this uh, Iran-Russia news, that... Um, that there is a distinct possibility, in my view, uh, that Satan is planning on making the end times, as as proposed by Hal Lindsey, uh, happen just like uh, we're expecting it to. Despite people jumping up and down saying, "No, that's not what the Bible says," and and that's not that's not going to happen like that or whatever, because it is by far the majority view. And in terms of, you know, people that believe in the in the end times in the Christian world, they're all expecting, you know, Russia and Iran to get together and go against Israel and the rest of it. And they're expecting, uh, you know, this this Muslim war, war to be defeated by uh, Jesus and stuff like that. So what if what if he's planning on using that exact thing and, and, and doing these political maneuvers and stuff that is, you know, uh, if you had the kind of. Uh, resources that he apparently does would be pretty easy to do. Of course, remembering that if you are going to try to primarily deceive Christians and Jews, if that's your really your main goal, which I interpret that's what Jesus's main warning was too. He didn't want us to be deceived by this. I, I think we too often, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, look at this as as the Antichrist is going to come and deceive the world. And that's his main target. But we won't be deceived, like, you know. I mean, think about it. Do you, do you really think that Christians could potentially be deceived by a radical Muslim Christian beheading group? Do you think that anybody is going to actually believe that from a Christian worldview? Um, that are going, you know what? I think there's something to this uh, militant uh, it, it, group, you know, we might, we're certainly worried that it's going to, you know, envelop the world and the world is going to become Muslims, but not us, obviously. I mean, even in a real sense, that's never going to happen. We're not going to convert to Islam or whatever. There's no deception possible in, uh, in that because, you know, as much as people say, Hey, why is, uh, why is the world so anti-Israel as much as the world is anti-Israel, the world is way more anti-Islam. And in terms of scaremongering and fearmongering and the rest of it, we are supposed to hate them, and probably in terms of you know security with a relatively good reason. So, so there doesn't seem to be any possibility of us being deceived by it. But in terms of a reverse psychology thing, if he really was intending to deceive Christians and Jews primarily. You know, he doesn't want to make unsaved people even more unsaved. He wants to go after uh, the ones that uh, either saved, or in the case of Christians, or uh, potentially, in well, everybody's potentially saved, but you know what I mean in terms of the Jews, because I think that uh, that's one of the reasons Jesus is coming back and whatnot. But the point is, he's going after them. And he, the Bible tells us he hates Christians and Jews a lot, and I think that that's his primary deception. But in order for him to do that, you have 
to destroy a Antichrist figure. You, number one, have to make it all look like it's going to happen, and you've got to make a guy look like the Antichrist, and you've got to destroy him if you're going to hold up the title of, of the return of Jesus or the Messiah. So the, the scarier the, the bad guy, the more defined the bad guy, the better. Now, I am not saying that that's what ISIS is. I don't think, I mean, I think, like I said, it could just all fizzle out tomorrow. I mean, that we could have some precision strikes and kill this uh, al-Baghdadi guy. They lose their Muhammad figure and it all just fizzles out into to nothing. But if it's not this, something like this can happen. I think this at the very least shows us that there is uh, desire and motive for this kind of greater Islamic state. And I think that just about anybody would, would uh, in terms of the Middle East, would uh, be supportive of a of a caliphate that was legitimate and that kind of stuff. Although, if you read the polls, most of them don't think this one is legitimate. But as I said, it could, through various victories and stuff, begin to gain more support of adults as it uh, progresses. So I don't think it's necessarily ISIS or whatever else like that, but it, it goes to show you that uh, how easy it would be and the kind of fervor that can be worked up to make Christians think, oh my goodness, this is it, this is the Antichrist, and that's, uh, you know, we, and especially if they're causing major issues and damage and so on. Now, in terms of the Gog-Magog war and stuff like that, which is what, of course, everybody thinks is going to happen right around the corner and everybody's looking for, you need to take into account that this very area, Assyria, suppose, you know, Iraq, Iran, uh, Syria, is not supposed to be a part of the, of the Gog-Magog war. They are supposed to, they don't, they don't participate in the Gog-Magog war. And my uh, view, as I explained in the book, is because, of course, I think that the Gog-Magog war, which will happen, but the Bible tells us it won't happen until after the end of the millennium. Revelation 20 tells us specifically when Satan is let out of the pit, gathers together the, the battle, the, the armies of Gog and Magog, which it says specifically to battle against the city, but they are destroyed. Now, if the Gog-Magog war occurs after the millennium, which I am convinced it does, and it doesn't occur before then, then the absence of Assyria and Egypt in the Gog-Magog war, the conspicuous absence of Assyria and Egypt, who are notoriously enemies of Israel, can be explained by the fact that the Bible tells us that during the millennium, Egypt and Assyria will be in a special relationship with Israel in terms of uh, uh, a, they will be very devoted to the Lord. Highway from Egypt to Assyria and all that stuff. I mean, there's going to be a very beneficial, and during the millennium, when Jesus is ruling from the earth, Egypt and Assyria are very closely uh, allied, if you will, with Israel. So it only makes sense that uh, when the Gog-Magog War happens, it's only those that are on that outskirts. There's this big buffer zone between the Gog-Magog War um, uh, countries and Israel, and that buffer zone is Egypt and Assyria. What used to be Assyria, what nowadays is Iraq and Iran and Syria. So anyway, that's sort of a side note. My point is is that uh, if you want to just, it, there's a danger, of course, of looking at, you know, dead people on Facebook and saying this is the Gog-Magog War. Well, no, it's not. Because if it's the Gog-Magog War, then what in the heck is uh, Assyria being doing leading the charge? So that, uh, again, is you, you have to apply all this sort of emotional stuff that you're seeing with a tendency to see this as the end times because, you know, I mean, people want Jesus to come back, and I understand that. And so there is uh, an emotional knee-jerk reaction to sort of paint everything with end times glasses. But if you're going to do that, you've got to explain what's going to happen uh, to Assyria. And so let's move on to the Russia-Iran thing because... Uh, this is what really got me to think, oh man, what if Satan actually tries to make all this unbiblical stuff that people like Hal Lindsey have been uh, saying for so long actually happen? I mean, who would be able to withstand uh, such a deception? So let's move on to the next piece of news. All right, so Russia has been in the news for a while, what with the Ukrainian situation and the military buildup there, and so we've all been pretty scared of Russia uh, for a few months now. 
But in addition to that, Russia has recently announced two landmark trade deals uh, or decisions in one case that uh, are pretty interesting. First, they have decided to ban exports from uh, Western countries, that is, food imports, agriculture imports, so, uh, you know, poultry and cheese and uh, fruits and vegetables and that kind of thing, which uh, will not will hurt Western countries, but not that bad. Certain, certain ones will suffer more than others, like Poland, Belgium, and others who are major exporters of food products to uh, Russia. And Russia will try to supplement this uh, lack of food by importing more from Latin America and Turkey and different places like that. And it's going to cause some uh, economic problems, especially in terms of supply for a while in Russia, which could be a potentially damaging situation. And in, ter- in, in addition to that, the, the cost of food will be much higher. So there's been a campaign in Russia to... Uh, you know, to buy Russian goods and so on and so forth. And for the most part, the Russian people seem to strongly support these sort of snubs of the West and the and Russian support. Uh, it remains to be seen after this particular food thing and how that turns out, but is higher than ever. So in addition to that, they have announced a landmark deal, oil for uh, goods and services program with Iran. And this is definitely a, uh, a fear-mongering thing, uh, probably more than it is an actual important thing, but we'll get into the details of that in a minute. So we've, in the, uh, in the Christian Hal Lindsey prophecy world, have been waiting for a Russia-Iran agreement for a long, long time, because if, it's not, if it doesn't happen, then the whole uh, Hal Lindsey-Gog-Magog scenario can't uh, occur. Because they have, and because of the strength of that particular paradigm, it's just, it's the majority view. Everybody's kind of waiting on Russia and Iran to get together and attack Israel. Well, now for the first time, we have some kind of tangible news to say, I will put hooks in your jaws, Magog, and then post a link to uh, this Russian Iran deal. So let's talk a little bit about that. First of all, the details of this are maybe not as as landmark as as we think. The idea is that uh, Iran is supposed to import uh, so-and-so barrels of crude oil to Russia, and in exchange, Russia will give them goods and services. But there's some problems with this. It doesn't seem to be that these two countries really have much to offer one another. Uh, they do both dislike the West, and probably there's something going on underneath the surface here. But this trade agreement doesn't seem to be very beneficial for really either party. I mean, Russia is one of the their biggest exports is energy. I mean, they are like this what second largest producer of oil or whatever. So they they can't uh, can't need this stuff that bad. And there's lots of problems, logistical problems, with them getting this stuff into the country. They don't have any coastal refineries. They, all their pipelines are exporting oil. They don't have the necessary infrastructure to import oil. Uh, and them being able to sell it is difficult. First of all, they have their own stuff, and they can't really... It wouldn't be that beneficial to Iran if one of the only options that Russia has is to sort of export Iranian oil to China, who's already buying uh, Iranian oil and has limits on the stuff anyway on imports. So it would kind of defeat the purpose from Iran's perspective. And in terms of what can Russia give to uh, Iran? Well, initially the idea was food, but clearly that's going to be probably an issue now when Russia is going to be on very short supply on food. And if anything, as the Fortune magazine uh, article has pointed out, it'll probably end up Iran will have to be supporting Russia for food. So that's not going to be beneficial for Iran. Other things that they've proposed is stuff like... Uh, uh, helping them electrify their rails and helping them uh, do certain technical things like that, but that is in helping them with their electrical infrastructure. But uh, Russia has a pretty bad, uh, I mean, sort of notoriously bad uh, electrical rail problem. They recently there was an explosion, killed like 23 people, and um, with a, a power uh, shortages all over Russia. And so, I don't know, they probably could do that anyway, despite them not being that good at it. So, I mean, I'm not saying that there isn't anything that they can't be united on. Uh, 
But the obvious question is, what about military stuff? Now, this is something that Russia does export. I mean, it exports vodka, but um, but vodka isn't uh, is is outlawed in Iran, so that's not going to be it. Um, and other textiles and stuff like that. The Russia Russian quality is very very low for all that stuff, and can hardly sell it in Russia, let alone uh, anywhere else. So military stuff seems to be the thing because that's something that Russia does pretty well, but even in the past when military deals, I mean, I think um, recently the problem is that Russia has not been delivering on their orders to Iran for military agreements. In fact, uh, Iran recently filed like a $4 billion lawsuit kind of thing against Russia because it didn't deliver uh, with, uh, filed the thing with Geneva about uh, didn't delivering on its its stuff. So so maybe they'll fix that up, but that does seem to be the most likely thing. In any case, I don't mean to diminish this as a, an important geopolitical move. I think that it is, um, especially in light of Western and Eastern divisions that are appearing. Iran and Russia and China have been finding more ways to work together recently, and uh, that seems to continue sort of an anti-West coalition um, centered around different things, including the devaluation of the dollar and uh, the petrodollar and all that stuff, which this oil deal has some ramifications uh, about. But So the fact that they are trying to work together, even though it might not be that beneficial, uh, that remains to be seen, is important in itself uh, because it could be an attempt to have closer relations down the road. So that still could play into the theories about prophecy. So let's move on to what are they saying that this has to do uh, with Bible prophecy? Well, the idea would be mainly that since we now have a tangible thing to say, look, Russia and Iran are getting together, and whether this has to do with military uh, weaponry provided by Russia to Iran or whatever it has to deal do with, it could have an impact geopolitically when and if Israel decides to target Iran. Because one of the concerns about this is that if Iran is going to be upgraded in, in its uh, nuclear program or whatever by Russia, then that's really bad news because they've been trying really, really hard to get them to... Uh, to move away from their nuclear program for obvious reasons. So that that raises the threat level uh, to Israel, as far as Israel would see it. But if Israel ever uh, unilaterally took out any parts of Iran or whatnot, that would then become Russia's problem, as one of their major now trade allies uh, is is involved and so would take a strong anti-Israel stance. Now Russia is uh, supposedly a Christian nation and they've had uh, really you know they've had good Israel relations in the past or you know fair Israel relations in the past but this could change that dynamic. So of course the modern Hellenzy view of this whole thing is that Russia and Iran and Turkey are supposed to converge against Israel in a great war and then Israel destroys them all. So this is just kind of looking down the line and saying, look, what could now happen? And it's all really just based on the fact that Russia and Iran shook hands on a particular thing. So on the one hand, I see this as something that is going to be used and talked about in relation to that to support the whole Gog Magog is around the corner kind of idea and that Russia is involved and so on. And it could all, like the ISIS thing, just blow over and we'll forget about it and then come up with something else or whatnot. But, again, it could it could be something... I can see the potential for this to escalate to the point of something like that really happening. If Israel did make some kind of attack against Iran and uh, Russia would therefore get involved, depending on the nature of that attack and the nature of everything that goes on there, which in the Middle East is very difficult to uh, guess because it could always spiral into a bigger conflict, depending on a number of factors. And Russia and Iran attacked Israel. 
then you would have people screaming Gog Magog from the rooftops. Now, technically, Turkey should be involved, too, if it's going to be even more accurate. Uh, so, and I would say none of those are really that accurate in terms of all this stuff. I would, again, see my book False Christ for more on that. But the point is that people would be absolutely sure this was Gog Magog if this happened. Perhaps uh, Turkey could get involved. They are, as I mentioned, going to be exporting more food to Russia. I'm not sure if that would be a big enough deal for them to say, yes, we'll go fight Israel too. But who knows what could happen. So if that happened, you would, again, just because they decided to retaliate against Israel, we'd have to wait and see what happens. Because in order for this to be a real deception by the Antichrist to get people to believe that the end times is really upon them, he would also have to have Israel nuke. Again, not in the real Gog Magog, God doesn't need nuclear weapons. He is destroying them uh, without nuclear weapons, uh, presumably. And I know people would say, well, what about the, they can't touch their dead for seven years and so on and so forth. And again, I go through all that stuff in the book, but uh, it definitely doesn't mean that you, I mean, you can't touch dead bodies as a part of, Jewish law anyway. That's why they can't touch dead bodies and they're unclean and stuff like that now because they're radioactive. But uh, anyways, the point is that that you would still need Israel to nuke everybody. But even that would not be enough. It would have to be in the context because the Gog-Magog war would would have to change things to such a degree if the the Jewish people believe that if Gog, the Gog-Magog war is happening, then it means that directly after that, the the uh, if they win that war, because that's what ultimately is supposed to happen, they're supposed to destroy Russia in this view, and there's destroy Iran in this view, and then they begin the Messianic kingdom. So y you still need a, uh, the, a savior, a genuinely... Uh, well, looks genuine to be a savior and says, look, I, I did this. I protected you all from your enemies and so on and so forth. And uh, you'd still need something pretty drastic to happen. A guy claiming to be Jesus Christ or a guy claiming to be the Messiah. If Christians are going to be involved in this deception, if it's going to be more than just scaremongering, and, and I'm, of course, looking very far down a potential highway here and and don't mean to take any of this as it's like going to happen but just just wargaming the whole thing i guess then then you you don't have any actual aftermath of this that has any eschatological implications unless there is also somebody claiming to be the messiah or jesus christ or both so you so in light of that i would say that uh if that happens and I do think that that's the whole thrust of Jesus' warnings against us. False Christ and false messiahs are going to come, show great signs and wonders, so great that they could deceive the very elect. That's the focus of this whole thing. The wars and rumors of wars and all that stuff are, are there, but Jesus is concerned about these false Christs and false prophets that are going to deceive, if possible, even the very elect. And I take that to mean that the very elect, those that are elect, are not going to be deceived by this. But there are some among the, his target group, that is Christians and Jews, who are going to be deceived about that, who necessarily, therefore, aren't the elect. That doesn't mean that they weren't claiming to be uh, Christians before that. Uh, it just means that he won't deceive the elect. It doesn't mean that he's not even going to try, which, as I argued earlier, would necessarily be the case if, if we all thought that the Islamic world is, is the Antichrist, because uh, that wouldn't deceive a single Christian. Uh, but it would make every single Christian think it's the Antichrist because this this view that the Antichrist is going to come to deceive the world, uh, but they won't be deceived because you know they know that Islam isn't true. Well, what if Islam was destroyed and Gog Magog and all that stuff were destroyed, and the guy who destroyed it was the guy claiming to be the return of Christ and convinced many of the Jews of that? How are we not going to see rejoice and say, look, the Jews have finally accepted Jesus Christ and and uh, their Messiah has come and the, the, everything has come to pass just like we, we thought it would. You know, he's a little different than we thought it would be. But, uh, you know, I mean, consider what he's done after all. I mean, all the prophecies have been fulfilled. But I think, again, that's why Jesus warns us about uh, his return at the end of Matthew 24 in the context of 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 this, this uh, deception from the Antichrist. He says, Essentially, my return 
is going is not going to be so uh, uh, obscure. You're not going to see me rise up in the political military ranks or don't go out there in the desert or don't go in the inner rooms to see it. My return will be like lightning flashing from the east unto the west. You are not going to miss it when it's me. I'm not going to just be some political military guy throwing nuclear weapons on anybody or anything like that. When I come, you will know it's me, not some guy. So I want to transition in the final thing about this and, and, and answer an objection that I'm sure is raised in people's minds, which is, hey, Chris, it sounds like you're saying that it's possible that uh, that the end times are looking like they could play out like the majority of Christians think that they will. You know, Russia is going to be involved with Iran and they're going to attack Israel and the Gog Magog war is going to actually be in a pre-millennial context and you're going to have... Uh, that an Islamic uh, group uh, eventually converge on Israel and all the stuff that you said wasn't going to happen, you know, could, though it doesn't right now, but could look like it will happen. And you're saying, hey, that's all fake. It's a deception. Well, what if you're wrong? What if you've just been wrong the whole time? And what we're seeing now is really the development of the true end times. And Jesus is going to come back and and uh, and destroy the ISIS or the equivalent of ISIS whenever that happens, or and Russia and the rest of it in a pre-millennial Gog Magog war. Isn't that dangerous for you not accepting Jesus when he comes back? And my answer to that is, it is way better to be skeptical of such an event than it would be to embrace it because even if half of the things that i say a quarter of the things that i say if 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 the antichrist really is trying to deceive christians and jews if the antichrist really will try to be as as it says a false messiah to the jews will be accepted by the jews as their messiah then we have to conceive of some scenario in which he does that and if he really is going to claim to be the Jewish Messiah, then this whole idea that we see playing in front of us is way dangerous for the person who's simply waiting for uh, Muslims to attack Israel or, or Russia and Iran to attack Israel. And then when Israel defeats them with whatever conventional or supernatural way that they do that, they'll just run to embrace the guy claiming to be Jesus Christ and having delivered them from their enemies and saying, come on, guys, let's set up the kingdom now because I'm back. And and if I if that really was Jesus, let's say let's say it all happened the exact way that I didn't think it was going to happen, and it really was Jesus that defeated Iran with nuclear weapons or whatever, and I said, you know, I am going I'm going to remain skeptical till I see it all play out, is better than saying it's him, it's him, the Messiah, Jesus Christ has returned and he's converted the Jews. I'm going to go worship him uh, in Jerusalem, or whatever. I don't know how. It, function in terms of Americans and whatnot. But the point is, it the the one of the areas that I can say with authority that the Antichrist can't do is the day of the Lord judgments in the book of Revelation. These are things that, try as he might, the Antichrist cannot fake. And I think that they're set up for that reason. So and and for me, there is no millennial kingdom. There is no me worshiping uh, Jesus in the temple or anything like that. Uh, and of course, I think that I'll be uh, uh, raptured before the day of the Lord judgments. But but of course, in this view, there's not going to be a real rapture. And I think that, it, 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 let me try to clarify what I'm going to say. If the Antichrist is trying to fake the end times, he's not powerful enough to fake a rapture. So he's just going to have to use that as a confusion to sort of get people off balance, I think, that have been waiting on one. Um, now, I, I've heard a lot of people say stuff like Project Blue Beam or whatever. Look, shining holograms into the sky is not the same thing as transporting millions of Christians. You just can't, you can't transport Christians with blue beams, with blue beam, I'm sorry. But nevertheless, I don't think there's a way for the Antichrist to do that. And, and so in this scenario, if somebody's going to claim that, hey, I just completed Gog Magog War and the Battle of Armageddon is over, the millennium has now begun, I'm Jesus Christ, come and please worship me, I did all the things that uh, you were expecting or how Lindsay told you was going to happen, then I would say, okay, well, if this is the millennium and the Battle of Armageddon uh, has already happened, then... What about the day of the Lord judgments? If I made it, if I made it through the day of the Lord, then how do you explain the fact that 
the all the green grass is supposed to be destroyed one of the uh, the judgments all at one point a third of the uh, the sea is turned into blood and then later on every single thing in the sea dies everything in the sea dies as I mentioned all the green grass is gone a great earthquake for example that is so great it's never been one like it so great that the mountains fall all the mountains fall i think it's inclusive of of the mountains everywhere falling or at least a majority of them. These are the kinds of things, the Day of the Lord judgments, including, uh, you know, the stings and the tails and the of the, the locust-like creatures. Or We could go through the, every trumpet and bowl judgment, and we'd say, that stuff didn't happen. And I don't, I don't see any way that the, the Antichrist or Satan is going to be able to fake those things, at least in a literal way. So my skepticism will be rooted in a... Uh, genuine literalist interpretation of the Bible saying, yeah, uh, you claim to be Jesus, and yeah, sure, all this stuff happened, but I'm still going to remain skeptical because I believe that my Lord, Jesus Christ, really is going to do the things that are in this book. And if it really was Jesus, I think that he would be like, all right, cool, we'll wait it out. You know, you see how this goes. You know, let's wait three and a half years, <laughs> see if I do anything crazy. Or whatever, I mean, you know what I'm saying. And, you know, if, if he really is Jesus, then he's going to be okay with, with me being skeptical. But but if you were the other end, you saw all this stuff as being ex exactly what Hal Lindsey said would happen. This is the real Jesus Christ. Let's go and give him a big hug and do whatever he says. Then that's more dangerous, obviously. Especially in light of some of the things that uh, that point to the Antichrist intentionally trying to deceive Jews and Christians and thinking that he is the Messiah, the return of Christ or the Messiah, depending on which way that you take that. So to answer that question, skepticism is uh, in this whole area, which I'll probably doing more of as I, if, if, and when I continue to look at the news and comment upon them with my, uh, with my skeptical viewpoint. Uh, I think it is a service rather than a, uh, uh, rather than a hindrance, I would rather find somebody that has a slightly different take on this uh, than somebody that's just saying the same thing that everybody else is saying. Uh, with the potential that if we are wrong about the thing that everybody is saying, then the consequences can't be uh, overlooked and could be the very thing that causes the great apostasy, the great leaving of Christianity. Uh, for the Antichrist's fake version of the Millennial Kingdom, in my opinion. So, with all that being said, I wanted to remind you about the uh, thing I said at the beginning of the podcast about day four and the sun being created and plant life on day three and the rest of that. If you have any good theories about that, I'd love to hear about it. You can go to my website, BibleProphecyTalk.com or NowhereToRunRadio.com and let me know what you think of all this. And thank you for tuning in. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free, and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.